Heavenly Father, we uh, come to this time now in our worship service where we come before you hungry with uh, open hearts, not just open ears, to receive a word from heaven. And Lord, we trust that uh, although the scriptures have been written long ago and even in a different language, in a different cultural context, Lord, but your spirit is timeless in the way that he works throughout the generations to make clear your word and to bring conviction to our hearts even now that we might understand the meaning, to understand what you are saying to us through this word and also to how to apply it in our day-to-day context. So, Lord, we ask for your wisdom and discernment in this time we ask that indeed we will hear a word from you, that we would respond also accordingly for your glory, for your purposes in this world, through this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, here's a question for you. I want to start out with a little question. Easy question at first, okay? Who here has heard of the company Amazon? Raise your hand. You've heard of the company Amazon. Come on, be honest. I see you guys are like really shy. Just raise your hand. Okay. Pretty sure everyone has heard of Amazon. Okay, cool. Here's an, another question, maybe for the younger ones, even. Especially the younger ones. Who has heard of the company Sears? Okay, wow, not bad. Not bad. Okay. Now, for those older in the room, of course, you've heard of Sears. But since some of you younger ones did raise your hand, let me ask you another question then, okay? I expected less ha- uh, fewer hands raised, but you know what? Here's another question. How many of you guys have typed in Sears.com and ordered something? Okay. How many of you guys have typed in Amazon.com and ordered something? Okay, all right, cool. Phew, my point is still, it's, we're still on track here. You see, back in the day, now we're talking 1893, 1893, Sears had revolutionized shopping and buying. Because rather than people going to the stores, Sears brought the stores to people for pretty much the first time. They sold these catalogs for a cheap price. Not, maybe you can compare it to Amazon Prime, okay? You, you pay in to buy this catalog, and then you can order whatever. You can browse the catalog and then uh, send in your order form to them, and then they will ship the products to your house, right to your doorsteps, literally. Now, in his book, Myth, Magic, and Marketing, we have a picture of Sears. Here's the, the catalog, for example. So you can buy pillowcases, bedsheets, and look at those prices. <laughs> yeah, back then, things didn't cost so much because of, you know, not as much inflation. Anyway, uh, in his book, Myth, Magic, and Marketing, Walt Kutzler, Kutzler, he writes this, In its day, mail order was as miraculous as the internet has been in ours. Sears Roebuck brought the store, and it was the world's biggest store, right to your kitchen table, wherever that table might be located. The railroad and the U.S. Postal Service were the magic connectors, enabling anyone, anywhere, to purchase virtually anything to be shipped anywhere in the United States. See, this is what people in business call a disruptive innovation. 
These are called disruptive innovation because it disrupts the market, okay? It, it's innovation that sends shockwaves throughout the whole market and, and their competitors are losing customers because of the, you know, the, the innovation. For example, of Sears innovating and bringing the, the products to you. It disrupts the market and their competitors have to figure out how to get their customers back. You know, Sears was the Amazon before Amazon. And just a few weeks ago, if you've been following the news, Sears filed for bankruptcy, right? October 15th, I believe. Sears filed for bankruptcy. I know, oh, it's kind of sad, right? I, I remember going to Sears at the mall and, and shopping things for, for my dad and things like that. Sears is, has filed for bankruptcy. The writing was on the wall for many years now because they couldn't, they couldn't adapt fast enough to... Um, to put their catalog and adapt it to make it an online version where people can utilize the internet to buy the things they need. I mean, they tried doing it, but Amazon pretty much did it faster and more efficiently than they did. Amazon capitalized on it, and Sears was sadly left in the dust. Now, another disruptive innovation is, for example, the Ford Model T in 1908. You guys learned about this in history class? What's significant about the Ford Model T? Someone, someone who takes, who listens in history. I saw it. Tony? It just looks cool? Okay, possibly. Before that, they just had horse carriages, right? And, and when automobiles were first invented, it was more of like a luxury item, very expensive, so the very wealthy can afford it and get around looking cool with their, you know, combustible engine or whatever. But most people didn't really, they couldn't afford it, so it was just a luxury thing. But the Ford Model T was the first automobile that was affordable to middle-class Americans. And so everyone started buying it now. And, and part of it was because Ford, you know, he, he used the assembly line rather than, you know, each part being handcrafted. It was an assembly line, factories and things like that. And it made it affordable in production so they can sell it to the average, you know, middle-class American. And so it revolutionized the, uh, the transportation industry. And it, it, again, sends shockwaves throughout the market. It was a market disruptor. It was a disruptive innovation. Now, all this got me thinking, are there disruptive individuals in history? Are there disruptive individuals, individuals whose arrival, either in birth or in the public sphere, the public arena, uh, kind of sends shockwaves into the world where you know, the status quo is shifted and the normal way that we understand our reality changes. I mean, some people might consider an ideal person as like Mother Teresa or Gandhi or uh, even Confucius or whatever. And, and they, but you know, even then, those people still kind of fit the same mold, right? They're, they're maybe good people, there are people with good reputations, uh, they have maybe good ethics, good morals, they're wise, maybe their teaching is, is you know, has, has a sense, has a, a uniqueness to it. They might be good teachers or whatnot, good role models. But is their arrival into the public arena really disruptive to the status quo and to the way that we understand our reality? I can't think of anyone besides the person of Jesus himself. If you come to think about it, Jesus is in a category all by himself. Jesus was disruptive. I think that's what Mark is trying to illustrate here in our passage. To the best that he's able to, to his readers, who were, most of them were not eyewitnesses to these events. 
And so he's trying his best to show to his readers that this person really was disruptive. In his presence, in his words, and in his works, he was truly a disruptive individual. Not disruptive as in like, you know, the way you guys disrupt in the classroom when you're talking, whatever. But like the, the same term that I used earlier when I talked about a disruptive innovation, this perhaps if we can apply it to an individual, I think Jesus comes the closest. And Mark does this in this passage, as you just heard read, by showing how radical and astonishing his authority is. His authority over the truth, his authority over the spiritual realm, as well as the physical. And that's, that provides the outline that you have in your, your bulletin. So let's take a look at the first uh, few verses here. Uh, authority over the truth. Now we read, they went into Capernaum, in verse 21, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Capernaum, if you can see on the little map here, northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so that's where they are right now. And if you remember the previous passage, Jesus just got done calling the first four disciples, right? And so now they went into Capernaum, and this is probably the, the place where the fishermen lived. So he, he went into, they went into Capernaum together, and on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Now, notice again the word immediately. Mark likes to use this word immediately. It gets the, the, the action, the story moving forward quickly. We never really have a time to catch our breath in the book of Mark. It's just boom, 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 boom. So immediately they go here and they immediately they go there. So here they are on the Sabbath. Now the synagogue can refer to kind of like a church, okay? Like, like a local congregation of, of Jewish believers or, or even the, the building itself. And so back then a synagogue, this is a, the ruins of a synagogue that still stands today. This is not the same one in Capernaum that Jesus went to. This one was built in the 4th century, but this is the, the, uh, a synagogue that you can visit today in Capernaum if you visit the Holy Land. Okay, So this is the ruins of a, of a synagogue. A synagogue back then might have looked something like this. or Once again, just kind of like a little church. And it, it kind of... Uh, the synagogue meeting places were established during the Babylonian exile where Jews still met together to learn about the Torah, you know, the Jewish law. And so during the New Testament time uh, period, there were a lot of these synagogues spread throughout the, the, the Greek Roman world, okay? Now Mark doesn't elaborate here in our passage the content of Jesus' preaching, though it probably had to do with the kingdom of God, which was mentioned in the previous uh, message, right? But, but what he's focusing on is the way in which Jesus taught. The way in which he taught. And then the reaction that it got from the people. Jesus taught with a particular authority over the truth that he taught. In verse 22, Mark says, He taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, who are the scribes? The scribes were teachers of the law, the law of Moses. They were experts. They were the ones that interpreted the law of Moses and, and found application for it, much kind of like what, what a pastor does today, right? You read, interpret, and find application, although we all should be doing that in our, in our, in our Bibles, right? In that day, they relied heavily on the scribes to do that for them. So they would interpret and apply the law of Moses. 
Now, some of the scribes were Pharisees. My head is really small, so this always slips down. I, when I look at other speakers, I'm like, how, how does it stay put on your head? And I realize my head is really small. Um, so we need to look into this issue. Anyway, the, the scribes were, some were Pharisees, some were Sadducees. But the one thing they had in common is that they always cited the traditions of the fathers. Okay, they always cited other authoritative teachers that came before them in the past. Okay. And so, for example, they might say, oh, Rabbi such and such, or Rabbi so-and-so said such and such. Right? They, they cite it. It's kind of like when you write an essay, you have to cite sources, right? Your teacher doesn't want your opinion. <laughs> Most of the time, they want you to, they want you to research well-published and documented sources. And then you can give your opinion too, but you always have to cite other authoritative sources, right? That's exactly what the scribes did. They had to cite other authority figures that came before them, rabbis, so-and-so. However, Jesus spoke with authority directly from God. He claimed to be the primary source. He doesn't cite anyone else. He spoke from himself. He, and he, he literally speaks with authority. What's the root word in authority? Author. He spoke as the author of truth. No wonder Mark says that the people were astonished at his teaching. See, the word astonished here is a very strong word. It, it, it includes feelings of fear and alarm. In the Greek, the root is strike, right? When you say, I'm struck with fear or struck with amazement, it's, it's a very strong emotive word. In other words, the, the, the word reflects an awareness of the, the disturbing character of Jesus' presence. There's a sense of something radically different in the way that Jesus taught, made people uneasy and yet intrigued, right? Uneasy with what he's saying and, what he's, and the way he's teaching, but they're very intrigued by it. That, that's all wrapped up, I think, in this word here. You see... And it makes sense, right? When we encounter God's truth, it has a tendency to do that, right? You are simultaneously intrigued by it, but there's hesitation because it confronts us. It confronts us in our sinful nature and, and, and the tendency that we have in our sinful nature to hide from the truth, right? I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. We have a lot of things we hide, not just from God, but from one another, we like to put on, you know, a mask when we come to church so often. And it shouldn't be that way, by the way. But, but we have that temptation. And especially in the day of social media where you can project any kind of image you want of yourself, whether it's, you know, on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, you get to select what pictures people see. And, and how many selfies do you need to take before you find the right one, right? You can delete whatever selfie you don't like. It, and so I feel like social media kind of feeds into the sin problem of wanting to hide our true selves. And so when, when Jesus confronts them with the truth as the author of truth, it's intriguing, and yet we hesitate. We hesitate to, uh, to uh, adopt what he is saying and to agree with him. And I think that's what's happening here in the synagogue as Jesus begins to teach. And so you could say Jesus, in this sense, was disruptive. He disrupted the, the status quo 
He wasn't like the other scribes that kind of just gave them things that they heard before. And you know, at this point, the people were ready for a change anyway. Remember we talked about uh, a couple of messages ago, they've been waiting a long time for, for things to change. They've grown tired with the political situation, they're growing tired with the religious situation. And you can, you can imagine they're going to these synagogues and they're hearing the same thing over and over, but they're still waiting for, for God to act in a very mighty way. And so when they hear this, they're intrigued. They're intrigued. Who is this person who speaks with such authority, not as the scribes? And then moving on to verse 23, Jesus immediately demonstrates his spiritual authority. Immediately, there's that word again, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Or a, um, I think some, some trans, translations say evil spirit, a demonic spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now this is the, the second time we see Jesus confronted with coming into conflict with power of Satan. The first time was in the wilderness, right, when Satan was there. And this is the second time. And this will be a major theme in Mark as, as Mark shows uh, the cosmic battle between God and Satan and, and how Jesus uh, confronts that realm. Now this man's personhood was apparently so uh, destroyed that the demon is speaking through him, okay? The demon is speaking through the mouth of the man. And apparently in Jesus' teaching, the demon felt so threatened that he, he decides to cry out and reveal himself. Now, as a side note, we have to acknowledge the reality of the demonic realm in this world and not be too quick to dismiss everything with uh, psychology or illness and things like that. And at the same time, we're not going to say every illness is demonic in nature, okay? But, but there, there is a reality of, of demonic um, activity in the world in which we live. In Mark, we see that when it does appear, it's pretty obvious. I mean, here's this man saying, uh, using the, the, the possessed person's body to speak to Jesus. It's pretty obvious when it does happen. So we don't want to say everything is demonic, but, but be aware that it is real. Anyway, he feels threatened, and, and he says in defense, what have you to do with us? Literally, the, the, if you translate the words word for word, it's what to us and to you. It's, that's an idiom. It's a Hebrew idiom to say, basically, uh, what, have you, what have you against us? What do we have to do with you? Or leave us alone, basically. Leave us alone. What relationship do you have with us? What business do you have here, Jesus? Now, if you're making good observations, you'll notice that the demon uses plural, a plural pronoun. He says us, right? He speaks for his fellow demons too, not just for himself. He's not just referring to this one personal instance and this one encounter with Jesus in the synagogue. He's concerned, he's concerned with what Jesus has come to do to the whole demonic realm. What have you to do with us? He's fearing that perhaps now is the time when God's son, the king, will come and overthrow Satan and the whole demonic realm and to deliver God's people from spiritual bondage. It's, it sounds like, like the demons have this foreknowledge that it's going to come. They just don't know when. And so now, they, all of a sudden, they see the Son of God walking the earth, 
and they shudder in fear. Is this the time when we are going to be judged? And now I also think Mark is using some irony here in this verse. He says, the demon calls him Jesus of Nazareth. And that, that phrase is only used two other times in Mark, Jesus of Nazareth. Remember we talked about Nazareth being this very small, insignificant town? And yet here he's speaking for the whole demonic domain and in fear. He's like, what did you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And so even though Jesus comes from a humble place like Nazareth, his power and authority is, is sufficient to overthrow and to strike fear into the whole demonic realm. And when he says, have you come to destroy us, it's, it can actually be a statement. It, there's, there's no punctuation necessarily in the Greek manuscript. So it's, it's literally saying, you have come to destroy us. But then he says something interesting. He says, um, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Now, is this a confession of faith, like, like the way we confess that? No. It seems like he's actually trying to gain control over Jesus. To gain control over Jesus. When, you, when we look at um, kind of the historical context of, of other uh, practices at the time, other people trying to, for example, control spirits and perform exorcisms, one of the common practices of the day was, or I guess the concepts of the day was that if you can identify someone and name them perfectly, then you can gain control and mastery over them. And so in his defense, in his fear, <laughs> the demon speaking out and saying, hey, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. He's trying to control and, and persuade Jesus to, to, you know, relent. Now, uh, let me back up one little bit I forgot to mention. When... When Mark is uh, recording this dialogue for us, and he says, and he has the demon say, have you come to destroy us? It's possible that as Mark, as Mark is writing this story, that he's leveraging these words to directly or maybe indirectly throw that question out to the readers as well. Have you come to destroy us? In other words, is the demon speaking on his behalf in the demonic realm, or is he speaking on behalf of, the, of everyone at the synagogue in attendance? Who's the us? Could it be that he's speaking on behalf of everyone in the synagogue? If Jesus is teaching about the coming of the kingdom of God in power, where he will save his people and judge his enemies, then it's a fair question for Mark to confront to his readers. Are you an enemy? Should you be asking Jesus, the arrival of Jesus, is he coming to destroy us? Is there judgment awaiting me? It's a fair question to ask the reader of Mark here. How can we find favor with this Jesus so that we are on his side and not standing against him? Have you come to destroy us? See, at this point in the narrative, it's still early on. We're not sure what, what exactly Jesus is here for. And so the reader is thrown out there up front. Is he here to judge? rightfully and justly, even us? Or is there a sense in which we can uh, come on his side? And remember, before this, Jesus already said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And so the urgency has been already been established, and it, it continues in this passage. Have you come to destroy us? 
Or is there a way in which we can repent and be on your side? To lay our weapons down, so to speak. Are we on the demon's side or are we on your side? I think that question is relevant to the audience that Mark was writing to. And of course, it is still relevant to us today. And in verse 25, as we move on, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. You see, other exorcists of that day, they would use secret formulas, they would use incantations or magical objects, things like that, to drive out demons. But Jesus here does it with his own authority expressed in simple words. Now, why would Jesus silence him if he's saying the truth? I mean, is it not true that Jesus is the Holy One of God? Why, why did he tell him to be silent? Now, for one, to answer that question, Jesus' identity doesn't need to be publicized by demons. Okay, he, Jesus will have his own timetable when he reveals who he is and his identity. It doesn't need to be shouted out by, by demons as if he's, like, he's associated with them, you know? Kind of like they might give him a bad reputation, okay? Uh, but secondly, uh, I think more importantly, this exorcism at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and this silencing of the demon sets the stage and sets the tone for the cosmic battle between God and Satan. Because the fact that he can silence them and, and he does not allow them to speak shows that he has absolute authority over the spiritual realm. If Jesus did not rebuke him, if Jesus did not say anything, then that would be to compromise the purpose for which he came, which is to overthrow, uh, not just die for our sins, but also to overthrow the powers that stand against God's people. He has to rebuke him and set the tone, set the stage early on to strip Satan of his power, to strip the demonic forces of their power. In verse 27 it says, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Now, why were they all amazed? Was it because they'd never seen an exorcism before? Probably not. They'd probably seen some, some exorcisms before. They were amazed because they've never seen this kind of authority. They've never, they don't have a category in their minds to put this into. It was truly disruptive. They, they, say, they say he commands even the evil spirits, the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Now, it's not uncommon to think of a man who, who commands the assistance of angels, for example, good spirits, but even an unclean spirit, unclean spirit, he just talks to them, he just gives them commands, and they, they listen to him? That's strange. That's really weird. And so they were astonished and amazed. What kind of man are we dealing with here where even evil spirits listen to him? You see, this is where a robust theology of God's sovereignty is not only biblical, but it is extremely helpful for the Christian life. It saddens me when I see Christians live in uncertainty and in fear because they feel like, like God has to respect the free will of demons. 
Uh, he just has to let them run their course and just kind of cross his fingers and hope for the best, right? I, seriously, I, I hear people that are concerned that, that somehow Satan is like this equal rival of God, kind of like, you know, um, I don't know, the, the dark side of the force or something, where it's like, it's equal, and you just got to watch out for it and cross your fingers that the good side wins eventually, all right? But let me ask you this. At the command of Jesus for the demon to leave, could the demon hypothetically say no and remain there? Do you think that's possible? When Jesus says, okay, leave, and all of a sudden nothing happens. Do you think that's theoretically possible? No, that's ridiculous for us to say that. It's ridiculous for us to think that, that Jesus has some kind of degree of power and then the demon can override it. It's clear from this text that Mark is saying that Jesus has absolute power. Even if the demon didn't want to, he had to obey because he's dealing with his creator. Isn't that, isn't that weird to think about? That even demons were created by this sovereign God. Who are we dealing with here? And that's the question that, that came up. What is this? That even the evil spirits, the unclean spirits, obey him. God is sovereign over all things, good and evil, because he's Lord over the whole cosmos. And Jesus demonstrates that right here. And so verse 28 says, his fame spread everywhere. Now, if you were an eyewitness to these events unfolding, you would also be talking and spreading the news as well. And yet, Mark immediately illustrates how Jesus is not indifferent to our physical needs. He's not just Lord over the spiritual. He's Lord over the physical as well. Look at verse 29. Here's that. Immediately, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Now Mark doesn't elaborate on what kind of illness she had, but having fevers was one of the symptoms. But more importantly, she was ill enough for them to tell Jesus about it. I mean, they saw Jesus do all these miracles, so they were like, hey, maybe uh, you should tell Jesus about your mom, your mother-in-law. And so they, they, they tell him about her, and that's, that's basically an indirect request for him to heal her, okay? Um, it's kind of like, hey, by the way, Jesus, uh, my mother-in-law is sick. You know, what do you think about that? So it's a request for, her to, for him to heal her. And then Mark says, of course, Jesus was happy to do that. Mark says, he took her by the hand. Now, whereas he previously used his words to, to perform exorcism, here he heals with a touch. Now, physical touch was a sign of compassion and identification with the sufferer. Now, we have a natural tendency to avoid touching people who are sick, right? I mean, we don't even, we don't want, we don't even want to be in the same room. We, we stay far away from people who are sick. But to touch someone is to identify with them. How so? Because by putting yourself out there in such a way that, that you might get sick as a result by touching them, what are you communicating? You're communicating that, that uh, you are more important than me. Me identifying with you and showing compassion to you and touching you 
be comforting you is more important than me getting sick. And so that's, that's an expression of love. And so touching has that, that communication. It's, it's a sign of identifying and loving the person. What was the result of Jesus' touch? She was instantaneously healed. Mark says the fever left her. And it's a much stronger word. The word can be thought of as forsaking. The fever forsook her. Like it just left her. In the same way that Jesus drove out the demon, he drove out the fever. That's, that's the, the imagery here. It forsook her. And then Mark says she began to serve them. And that indicates that, well, for one, the healing was effective, but also that, that Jesus heals for a particular purpose. Jesus heals for spiritual service. We are healed and brought uh, near and made whole to be in the service of the king. So in conclusion of the account, Mark writes that evening at sundown, that, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city, that's hyperbole, okay, exaggeration. The whole city was gathered together at the door. They probably were getting in line to, to get some of this healing, okay? He healed many who were sick. Now, the many there doesn't mean like some were healed and some weren't, okay? The many meaning it's just, it was just a lot of people that he healed who were sick with various diseases. He cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So let's summarize what Mark is teaching throughout this passage. Clearly, the theme that stands out the most is authority. That Jesus demonstrates an unparalleled, unrivaled, disruptive, unprecedented authority. And now, to what purpose is Jesus' authority exercised? Like, if, when we look at this, why do you think Jesus is doing it? What's the purpose? I mean, at this point in his ministry, even the crowds don't know, right? They're just here to get stuff. They're here to get healing. Uh, they're just excited that he's working all these miracles. They don't know why he's here. They don't know the real purpose. Presumably, they weren't all there in, in the wilderness when, when John was proclaiming the, the baptism of repentance and, and Jesus was there proclaiming the kingdom of God. These are all people in the town just showing up to get some healing. So what's the purpose? Why... why is Jesus doing this? In fact, even the disciples don't really know Jesus' purpose until chapter 8 of Mark. Okay, so one of these things that Mark does is shows how much the Messiah was misunderstood. He is the misunderstood Messiah in, uh, in Mark. Only until chapter 8 did the disciples understand it. But from our vantage point of knowing where Jesus is headed, that is, he's headed to the cross, we can kind of interpret these events in that light. So what do you think Mark is expecting his readers to kind of see? Some of the, his readers will, will have knowledge of the cross. Most of them will. And here's what I think. Um, these are all signs. These are all signs that point towards who Jesus is. Jesus is the embodiment of salvation. Salvation is not a thing. Salvation is not just some abstract concept. Salvation is a person. And in this person, King Jesus, we have salvation from falsehood. That is, he's the author of truth. That's point number one. We have salvation spiritually, as demonstrated in his 
overcoming of Satan and demonic power. And then thirdly, we have salvation physically, as demonstrated in the healing. Okay, so we have, in Jesus demonstrating his authority over truth, the spiritual realm, and the physical realm, we have a picture, we have a sign that points us to the kind of salvation that is in Jesus. That's what I'm trying to say. That the salvation in Jesus is a salvation from falsehood and lies. It is salvation from spiritual oppression, but it's also a salvation from the physical curse that we have of sickness and death. Salvation is all of those things, and it is provided in Jesus alone. Now, we, we sometimes falsely think that God only cares about our spirit. That God only cares about, you know, spiritual things. But you know what? We are spirit body creatures. That's how God created us. He created us as spirit body creatures. And, and in proof that God cares about the body too is the resurrection. Jesus rose again in a brand new body and that guarantees that we also will, will be raised to resurrection bodies one day. God cares about the physical body as well. And so the healing ministries of Jesus described here are the sneak peeks of what is to come, of what it is that salvation looks like in its fullness, okay? Salvation is not just spiritual salvation. It is spiritual and physical. We, we hope not just in a, a, a heaven new creation where we're just spirit beings floating around with no bodies. Our hope is in a new resurrection, physical, spiritual body that does not have any aches and pains and illnesses and diseases and death. It is a new creation body, perhaps with new laws of physics, but it's still physical nonetheless, right? It's still physical. Salvation is not a thing. Salvation is a person. And that's why we are saved, not doing all the right things, but, but by believing in the person of Jesus himself and having a, a relationship with God through him that is built upon faith, hope, and love. Now, in closing, I just want to leave you with one last thing, one last thought. Take a look again at these three things that Jesus has authority over. Truth, spirit, the spiritual, and the physical, right? Now, what does sinful man do with these things? Truth, the spiritual, and the physical. What does man tend to do with these things? With the truth, we look to, uh, to man-made philosophy that says what? It says, man is the measure of all things, right? We are the standard of truth. We look to ourselves to find truth and to, to determine truth. When it comes to the spiritual, what does man do? When I say man, I mean like mankind in our sinful state. What do we do when we, when we look at the spiritual? We say, oh, we look inward to find true spirituality, right? Once again, we look inward to find true spirituality and enlightenment. When it comes to the physical, what do we do? We look to human reason and scientific knowledge and technology and medical advancement to overcome pain and suffering and even death. I mean, the, the end goal for, for medical technology is immortality, right? I mean, it's to extend life as much as possible to bring healing to the physical uh, body. Now, I'm not saying medicine is bad. Obviously, God gives us medicine and technology as a grace. But we have a tendency to idolize that, right? To idolize life as like, you know, we need to attain to immortality by pretending that death isn't real. You know, we got to... Extend it as much as possible. Stem cell research, genetic engineering, eugenics, you name it. It's all headed towards immortality. But again, we look to ourselves, our own faculties, our own devices in order to attain it. 
But Jesus says you can't ultimately look to yourself for these things, whether it's truth, spiritual, or physical. You can't look to yourself. You must look at me. Now that is truly disruptive. That turns everything we know as sinful human beings, it, that turns all our tendencies upside down, doesn't it? It changes the way we understand our reality. And that is truly disruptive. Salvation is found nowhere else but the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Don't look to yourself. Look to Jesus. And now, as we transition to a time of Holy Communion, uh, I, I think it. I, I think it's a good reminder, and Jesus helps us. Or Jesus, Jesus establishes this this sacrament so that we can remember how disruptive it is. Right? It's so disruptive to think that in order to live, there must be death, or in order for for us to be saved, we must not look to ourselves, but to look at Jesus. And so I think every time we partake of the bread and partake of the the juice we are reminded of how disruptive uh, our faith really is. Now, if, it, if it's not disruptive, if you feel like your life is the same once you have encountered Jesus, then I, I, may I encourage you to, uh, to think deeper about your faith. Is it really Jesus that you are encountering? Or is it, or is it just a, um, um, another form of man-made religion, where we look to ourselves, we look to better ourselves, look inward to find spirituality, look to our own reasoning to, uh, to think about eternal things. How disruptive is your faith? And so as we come to the table this morning, uh, I want us to, to allow it to humble us as we mourn the fact that our sin made it necessary for Jesus to die. Our inadequacy made it necessary for Jesus to die. May that disrupt where you are right now. May it sit uneasy with you right now so that you are drawn to him again. Drawn to him anew and say, Lord, I, I try to do it myself and I can't. And so, Lord, I, I accept your gracious provision in the body and blood of Christ. Turn with me, if you will, to... 1 Corinthians, um, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul reminds us of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, starting at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, 
and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discernment, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So I want to open up this communion to all baptized believers. And in this time before you come, come up to receive the elements, do take time to pray and to discern where your heart is right now. Is your heart at a place of self-sufficiency, of looking to yourself to find meaning and truth? Or is your heart broken? Is your heart uh, saddened and grieving at the sin that resides still in it? If the latter, I invite you all the more to come and receive the elements as a physical, tan uh, tangible reminder of the provision that God has made for you to preserve your spirit and your body for eternity. Okay? And so as, as we take a moment to pray, uh, when you are uh, ready, please feel free to come up the center aisle and bring the elements back to your seats, and then we will partake together.
This is the body of Christ, which was given to you to preserve your body and spirit for eternity. Take and eat. This is the blood of Christ, which was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we confess that uh, we are inadequate. And yet we believe the lie that we're not. Our sin nature, Lord, is still strong in its grasp at times. Sometimes it feels like more than, it's stronger than other times. And yet, Lord, we know that your spirit is working in our hearts to, to continually transform us to the image of your son, that we might grow in a greater awareness of our need of him and less of a dependency to, to depend on ourselves and our own resources. And so, Lord, we pray that day in and day out, as we encounter your word, as we pray, as we come together as a church family, that you continually disrupt the status quo in our lives that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word, that we wouldn't just say with our lips that we are your disciples, that we would, but we would actually be your disciples, that we would actually follow and pursue you, even though it might disrupt the things of our lives, the way we understand our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that we would grow, have a growing awareness, not just of our sinfulness, but of the growingness of your grace. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. Thank you that there it is. There, what's crucified is our sin and our self-sufficiency. And we can humbly follow you, trust in you, and love you freely. Because you are, you are great, you are merciful, you are gracious, and you have all authority to make that happen for our lives. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.